Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Turn over in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 12 through 19. And uh, for those of you who have um, experienced uh, my sermons over the years, this will be a little bit different this evening because I normally would get one or a, a passage and just sort of stick with that. And tonight we're going to be all over places in the New Testament, and I uh, will try to go slowly enough where you can turn to those passages if you if you will. So this is uh, the Word of God from 2 Corinthians 5, 12 through. I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. This is the Word of our God. <clears throat> For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance, not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, Yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation, that is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray before we hear the message for this evening. Oh Lord, our God, we pray that The words of our mouths, the meditations of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight. And that your truth will come through the words or the lips of your servant. And that you will give us all ears to hear, not your servant, but your voice speaking in the word. That we may apprehend in a new way, a new level of appreciation of Christ and his finished work, and that we may live in view of that 
and in light of that. And we pray to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to look <clears throat> at, um, I'll ask two questions to, to begin with. First of all, have you ever in your schoolroom or in your place of work, in the workplace, have you ever had your uh, integrity questioned? Have you ever had your reputation called into question? because of various accusations, true or false. Um, part of 2 Corinthians, um, which has some very, very rich doctrinal places, and this is one of them, uh, is along the way, there's kind of an ongoing uh, issue between Paul and some of the leaders, some of the members, I suppose, also, of the church at Corinth. And you see this popping up points along the way. That's my first question. Um, second thing, and the title of the message comes from verse 16, we, from now on, and it says, we regard no one according to the flesh. <clears throat> this is not really a question, but I can remember um, growing up uh, if my brother and I um, pushed the letter, so to speak, beyond a certain level of tolerance by my parents, our parents, um, I can still hear Dad's voice saying, all right, boys, you know, and he called us into question for whatever it was, and he would say, from now on, and then he would lay out the new way of, um, of obedience or response to whatever it was we had done, and we knew <clears throat> when we heard from now on that we better toe the mark. So um, just those two things in view as we begin to look at the text. <clears throat> the apostle Paul finds himself in very delicate circumstances with believers in Corinth. After a previous sorrowful visit, which is noted for us in chapter 2 and verse 1, he writes to them a very forceful letter in which he calls for genuine repentance and godly change. Uh, somewhere in the first letter to the Corinthians, uh, he, is, um, he answers a lot, of, a lot of ongoing issues, and one of them has to do with a person who has uh, violated a number of, just, of God's laws with regard to sexual behavior. And in Paul's view, I think it's at the end of chapter 5, he uh, tells the Corinthian church that in his own mind, uh, this man who has violated these laws of God, in his own mind, he has, he has been excommunicated. He should be disfellowshipped at that point. Um, he is also uh, gets after the congregation for letting this go on and become a... Become a, a, a well-known, I suppose, in, in the city. Um, and this won him no points of favor. Uh, the personal nature of the letter as a whole, 2 Corinthians, is very revealing. Uh, we are given glimpses of the apostolic ministry of Paul, 
um, which was a service of comfort, instruction, encouragement in the midst of suffering and personal attacks from some. Let me get you to turn back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll get a sampling there of the kind of things that he heard all the time. The very beginning of the first letter, chapter 1. Look down around verse 20. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Jews request a sign. Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God <clears throat> is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the, saint, the things that are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification and redemption that as it is written he who glories let him glory in the Lord and I brethren when I came to you did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God I determined to know nothing or anything not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul went to the church in Corinth, or established the church in Corinth on his second missionary journey. Corinth was in a center of Greco-Roman culture. Um, the, the complaint against Paul was, you're not very impressive. You, you don't have the photogenic image that we want for people in public. Um, there were other issues further back in chapter 1. Um, there were divisions within the church. Some said, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. And there were all kinds of divisions, and there was also division over him and the apostles as they labored to establish the true gospel. Jews want a sign, Greeks want wisdom. Wisdom as they define what it is, and we would call it worldly wisdom. 
They liked philosophers. They liked the reflection of the secular worldview. And Paul would have none of that. He says that he... Um, God has chosen, this is back in chapter 1, verse 27, the foolish things of the world to put to shame the, th the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the verse goes on. And what he is talking about there is this, the plain, unvarnished gospel message. He's not playing to the audience of the Jews or of the Greeks. He is seeking to be faithful to the word of God revealed and to communicate that to uh, his people there in Corinth. Now, in chapter 5, in verse 11 or 12, where he speaks of those who boast in appearance. And we can go back to, to 2 Corinthians 5 now. Um, just for a moment. Those who uh, boast in appearance, he refers to those and to the world's method of evaluation, striking contrast to that of a true apostle who endures troubles by fixing the eyes of his heart on the things which are unseen and eternal. That's a quote from verse 18 in chapter 4. Later on in chapter 11, he identifies those, some of those who oppose him as false apostles. That is a serious charge. And, and he also says of them that they are typical representatives of the world. They take much pride in their outward appearance. They rely on self and they love money and power and prestige. If you've noticed in our own culture, uh, oftentimes, when, we, when someone wants a spokesman for something, they get a very well-polished politician. Or they get uh, someone from the world of rock music or some sports celebrity. And we wonder, how come is it that these people have more standing than just normal people? Well, it's because of the way they look and how they sound and, and what they supposedly are communicating. And this is the worldly way of doing things. And Paul's ministry is being carried out in the strength of the Holy Ghost in the midst of this kind of culture, just like 2022 here in the United States. Now, if the Corinthians understand Paul's self-defense and the vindication of his ministry in a biblical manner, they will have an answer for these false apostles and their superficial standards of judgment. One is reminded of the statement in 1 Samuel 16 and verse 7. You'll remember this. Um, a successor to King Saul is being, is being uh, vetted, we might say, in today's uh, culture or way of expression. And Samuel is there. going through the sons of Jesse. And one of David's brothers shows up, and he's very handsome in appearance. He is a striking figure. And Samuel is saying, this must be the one. 
Remember, Saul was very handsome and very striking in appearance with a head taller than anyone else and a very tall guy as we understand it from the scriptures. But God speaks to Samuel in that moment and he says, no, I have rejected him. The Lord does not see as man sees for man looks upon the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And it is out of this storehouse of grace that Paul is ministering. Now I want to make um, four, excuse me, four uh, points here. And um, I'll invite you to follow along with me as I do so. The first point is this, that the love of Christ is compelling and it is glorious. It is Christ's astonishing holy covenant love for his people that forms the basis of motives, our motives for life, worship, and service. We are constrained by his love. Look down at verse 14. That is where this verse comes from. Um, the old King James said, use the word constrain. The new King James says, compels. Um, the ESV says, controls. It's a very interesting description of God's love, the agape, self-initiated love of God, and the way that this is carried forth and finds its mark in the hearts of those who need to be saved. You, you've read this verse a thousand times, I'm sure. Um, the love of Christ compels us. We're constrained or compelled or controlled by this love. The New Testament word here is, is quite a vivid word. It is, describes a type of divine pressure that confines and constricts as well as controls. And I, I was searched uh, in my mind because uh, years ago we went through 2 Corinthians. Um, I guess one of the best ways to describe in the terms we would understand what he is saying here is like, it's like a very good, strong, stout, garden hose. Um, the hose um, confines the water to the hose itself. It constricts it, doesn't let it get out of control unless you've got a cheap hose that all of a sudden begins to bubble up. And it, con it constricts as well as control. So you have a solid, consistent flow of water. So this is not just sentiment or emotion that is just kind of thrown out there uh, to a dying world. We're led to conclude that if one died for all, according to verse 14, then all died. Savior who died for all his covenant people did so because they were spiritually dead. Linger with me for a moment in verse 14. This does not say that he died for all without exception in the known world. Most of us grew up being taught a version of that. 
Remember though, this is not a letter to the world per se. This is a letter to Christians at the church in Corinth. He is speaking of those arrangements that have to do with their salvation <clears throat> and where they have come from. And he is appealing to them to live according to their identity in the things of Christ. Now we're living in a moment when the whole question of identity is, is out there in the public. And we hear all kinds of, of uh, comments and commentary on, on, on our identity and gender and all of these things that are now currently um, right out there in, in the culture. But notice in verse 14, the Savior who died for his covenant people did so because they were spiritually dead. And it says then that he died for all, verse 15, that those who live should no longer live for themselves. The gospel rescues needy souls from utter spiritual ruin. He brings redemption and hope to dead hearts regenerated by the power of gospel preaching. We just actually read that from the Heidelberg Catechism. Those who live in and now by the Spirit have new hearts. Hearts that have been changed, freely justified by His grace, adopted into God's family, and indwelled by the Holy Spirit for their sanctification. Verse 15 says, They no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died for them and rose again. I suspect we do not fully appreciate just where we came from and how destitute we were before Christ penetrated our hearts by His Spirit with His truth to regenerate us and awaken us to our sin and danger. Let me illustrate this in a couple of ways. First of all, before that particular illustration, I want you to turn back with me to 1 Corinthians 13, which is the love chapter. Because it says that the love of Christ constrains us or compels us or controls us. It's the love of Christ that was behind our redemption. We speak of it in terms of covenantal arrangements, but this was not simply a legal transaction. This transaction in our souls was born out of steadfast covenant love. Let me begin to read in 1 Corinthians 13. Paul writes, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Those verses speak of outward acts 
that come from hearts that are strangers to the gospel. Notice verses 4 through 7, though. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Let those verses sink in to your head and heart. These are verses I'm sure that you have read a thousand times as well. But look back over, particularly verses 4 through 7. Do you realize how hard this is to actually do and to live out in daily life? Suffering long? We are very in a very impatient society. Love does not envy. We have a whole culture based on envy, wanting what someone else has. And being angry because we don't have it does not parade itself. We are in a, in a culture that uh, the selfie culture is continually parading itself. Does not behave rudely. Tell that to the people who are roundly or, or often uh, slandered in public. <clears throat> the use of profanity and vile responses or references in public speech is now normal. According to Paul, biblical love being expressed in the life of a believer doesn't do this. Doesn't seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, doesn't rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. How many times are we inwardly happy because Someone got what was coming to them as we considered that that would be so. On and on this could go. Um, but it was the love of Christ <clears throat> which has rescued us from such. And how bad off were we? Turn over, if you will, to... Um, Ephesians chapter 2 for just a moment. Paul writes in chapter 2 verse 1, You he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Did you get that phrase? Dead and trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world. You were physically alive, but you were spiritually dead. You were the member, you were born into the wrong family. You were born in the family of Adam and his progeny. And you walked according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience among whom also we once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Paul goes on to say that we were walking in darkness. And in Ephesians, we were darkness before the light of the gospel penetrated our hearts 
and changed us and brought us from death to life and gave us repentance and gave us faith in Jesus and His finished work and gave us an adoption into a new family. We're now heirs and joint heirs with Christ. And we have the indwelling of the Spirit. Those who are still in Adam's family and unconverted, they do not have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They cannot think God's thoughts after Him. They cannot live according to the laws of God. They cannot hear the Word of God. Holy Spirit is not the same in them as He is in the lives of believers. Do you realize what we possess, brothers and sisters? We have something that the world doesn't have, and they don't understand it. And we can either get caught up in the mindset of the world, or we can face it in the strength of the Son of God. Now, go with me to verse 16. We're back in 2 Corinthians. <laughs> um, This changes the way we relate to others. Because Paul says that he has a new way of looking at, regarding, and understanding Christ. Now he has a new way of understanding others. Others, including Christ. He now sees other believers in a new way. According to their standing with him. In the new creation. And not as he did before. So, we encounter people, and instead of immediately judging them by the way that they look, or if they're covered with tattoos and body markings, or if it happens to be two same-sex couple, a same-sex couple walking along, if we're really following this out the way we should, we regard them as image bearers. People who need the gospel rather than making a judgment and basically writing them off. Jesus ate with sinners. The Apostle Paul went into the synagogue where the Jews who opposed this doctrine uh, were, as we know and we can see this in the book of Acts, basically were his sworn enemies. They followed him from place to place to make sure that his voice was not heard. And he just persevered. He didn't despair. This leads to the second conclusion. Verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, <clears throat> he is a new creation. Now, in Jewish literature, the rabbis used the term new creature to describe those whose sins had been forgiven. Here in this text, Paul is led to record words that emphatically declare the full glory of the gospel of grace. The phrase that we use, in Christ, surely reflects the newly regenerated heart and the new standing of the believer, which we call justification. But it also focuses upon the significance of the believer's union with Christ. Go with me over to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 3. One of the great chapters of the New Testament. 
Notice what it says. Chapter 3, I'll begin reading at verse 1. <clears throat> if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Catch that phrase, hidden with Christ and God. What is he talking about? He's talking about our union with him by faith. And it says, when Christ, who is our life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. How can he say that? Because if we're united to him, we're going to be with him. And before that event occurs, he's going to be with us in the person of his Holy Spirit. Now, because Christ is the last Adam, and I've already alluded to this once, our main problem, and we have a lot of them if we're unconverted, is we're born in the wrong family. We're sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. We carry the mark of the fall. And because Christ is the last Adam, Adam, the first Adam represented us and he failed. Christ as the second Adam represented us and he fulfilled everything that the first Adam failed to accomplish for us. Perfect obedience to the law of God. And because he is the Last Adam, the one in whom redeemed humanity is recreated and who inaugurates the age of gospel blessing, the believer's identity is new, it is sealed by the person and work of the Holy Spirit, and his spiritual union with Christ is nothing less than participation in the new creation. Look back in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is the resurrection chapter. And look at verse 22. Let me read verse 21 along with it. For since by man came death, by man, and that's the new man or the second man, the second Adam, came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die. That's all without distinction. All without exception. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. If you're in Christ, God's electing grace has singled you out, not for anything in us, but for His own holy purposes. And as we have seen, the compelling love of Christ. He has done this in our behalf, and He has made us His children, and we are now united to Him by faith alone. His spiritual union with Christ is nothing less than participation in the new creation. Notice what it says there. Um, verse 17. He is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. In 2 Peter 1 and verse 4, Peter writes this. 
by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. The great and precious promises are a reference to the gospel, and being partakers of the divine nature is basically the same thing as saying your union with Christ. You're called to be someone new. You're called to live in a new way. You're called to regard people in a fallen world in a better way than most of us probably have done too often. Old things have passed away. Because of the person and work of Christ for us and in us, all things have become new. All things. A rich phrase that indicates both the completeness of his work and its continuing significance for the believer. Three things in closing. You're no longer defined by your sin, but by God's amazing grace. You're no longer defined by spiritual darkness and death, but by the light of God and the hope of the gospel. You're no longer defined by your former identity in Adam and the wages of my sin, but by my new identity in Christ and the reality that I am a new creation. Paul urges the people in Corinth to realize who they are, what they've been given, and the motivation behind all of this, which is the love of Christ himself. And he urges them to respond to that love in particular ways. I won't go into this as we close, but look at verse 20 just very quickly. We're ambassadors, official representatives of this gospel that has sought us out, given us life, justified us freely, adopted us into a family, given us the Holy Spirit, for our sanctification and holiness and the promises of glory. We're ambassadors of this Christ and that work as though it says God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, <clears throat> be reconciled to God. That speaks of the work. This is basically a restatement of the Great Commission in Matthew 28. It is an appeal for you and me to go and represent our King. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we have tread upon holy ground in this text. We have not even begun to exhaust its riches. We are aware, O oh Lord, that our salvation was not something that happened on a whim, but it was it was the result of a loving choice made in eternity past. And in the fullness of time, you sent your son to redeem those that were under the law, to change our hearts, to give us new life, and to set us on a path that would lead us to the new heaven and the new earth. Oh, our God, may these verses come to us with renewed significance and power and change us more and more into the likeness of Christ. 
in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.